If the road to hell is paved with good intentions, then the road to freedom is rocky, uphill, lined with thieves lying in wait. The path to restore freedom in markets, and even to arrive at a totally free marketplace, is the straight and narrow way indeed. Traveling to its end will require personal integrity, fortitude, sacrifice, patience, manliness, and endurance. It will also require these qualities on a wide scale, socially speaking. In simple terms, the road to free markets requires a personal and corporate return to the principles outlined in the first part of this topic. Nonviolence uh, to person or property and the enforcement of contracts. We must personally embrace these principles, discipline our lives, work and our businesses accordingly. And more importantly, we have to maintain this discipline. We absolutely must refuse to depart from God's laws, even when it's more profitable, when it's easier, when it's widely socially accepted to do so. Uh, before we have a moral leg to stand on, to demand the same from other people politically, we have to practice fiscal integrity ourselves. And the model here, of course, is our Messiah, of whom David said this in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn into your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This guy refuses to do anything dishonest at all, and this includes certainly in his business dealings. More importantly, it says, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. This does not mean he swears to his own hurt on purpose, of course, necessarily, even though Christ did swear to his own hurt in going to the cross voluntarily. But when circumstances turn against him, he does not try to alter the promises or the contracts that he's previously made to maintain his profits or to prevent his losses. He bears the brunt of this deal as he made it, as he said, and he takes the sacrifice. And he will even go further. When he sees that society has departed from God's laws, that fraud and extortion have become socially accepted ways of life, that most people accept and even depend, and many thrive upon coercive rigged markets, he refuses to participate anyway. He'll suffer the burdens of inconvenience, of lower profits, of decreased business, a social stigma, and even persecution in order to remain faithful. And anyone who wants to return to freedom in the marketplace will have to embrace this level of sacrifice and commitment from the beginning. And this embrace will mean a clear application of the principle we've talked about all through this project. Don't take the cheese. Only now it's not only to avoid the trap, it's also, and perhaps more so, uh, because it's morally wrong. It's unbiblical, it's unethical, it's ungodly to take the cheese to begin with. This is not merely about personal and practical consequences. It's about moral principle. It's about faithfulness to God's law. A large part of this effort is going to be mental 
And that means it's going to be spiritual. People need to accept the mindset that the use of government force to gain advantage is equivalent to theft. It is an unstated, never to be stated, political maximum among conservatives that socialism is bad, except when it benefits me. When the modern conservative says socialism is bad, what he really means oftentimes is that the other guy's socialism is bad. Mine, however, is good, right, laudable, necessary, uh, whatever. Until we get beyond this psychological hurdle, freedom is a distant goal. Now, of course, getting people to do this just by stating, uh, stating it is almost equivalent to saying, you know, can't we all just get along? Uh, getting from where we are today to the point where the biblical mindset is both widely believed and widely practiced is going to require the same discipline and sacrifice for many people that we've already discussed in, in relation to education in other previous chapters. These are the key. Sacrifice, discipline. Both will be needed to, number one, prepare a faithful remnant as a foundation, as an example into the future. Number two, to facilitate the transition from where we are today to the free society. And number three, to maintain markets free of corruption, free of tyranny and graft after that transition is affected. Now before I address the best way to make an impact, let's discuss a couple ways this commitment can change your personal lifestyle. Embracing this commitment will likely mean changing where and how you shop, how you do business, likely what you buy, what you buy to eat, what you buy to wear, and including where you live and what you live in, if such a change, of course, can be made at this point, and even what you drive. Uh, you'll no longer necessarily choose the best bargains or make uh, simply self-interested economic decisions. Self-interest is now replaced by sacrifice and dip discipline to God's interest, that is, His law. If you don't believe in government-funded corporations, then why would you support them through your purchases if you have other options. Even if more private options cost you a little more money, why not prefer the slightly more expensive, slightly less comfortable, slightly less prestigious principle and integrity over the small personal gain? Now the purist, however, who, who wishes ideally to live completely without supporting companies that receive government subsidies is going to find this very, very difficult. Virtually everything in our economy today is in some way, at some level, to some degree, tainted by government interference. And of course, since the entire monetary system is rigged to begin with, and as we've already talked about, then virtually no economic decision we make is going to be truly free of government manipulation or government intervention in some way. No bank we, we use is or can be truly honest at this point. The only way to avoid this is to swear off the use of Federal Reserve money altogether, and that's going to mean living off of a barter system, self-sustained agriculture, and even then you couldn't totally escape the government's hand. Study, for example, the difference between fee simple ownership of your property, your land, and tax-free alloidal ownership, which is almost non-existent and extremely difficult to obtain. So in many ways, we're stuck in an unfair system of bank subsidy and privilege, and that leads to unfair investment, market subsidies as well. One market that is seeing a resurgence of resistance is the food market. Many local people, 
towns uh, we've already seen are fighting to establish freedom and local sovereignty over their local foods. The fact is nearly every aspect of agribusiness today is massively subsidized. Between 1995 and 2010s, the feds have pumped more than $260 billion into agribusiness subsidies. And this uh, comes from a group called the Environmental Working Group. It's got a fabulous farm subsidy database, a website. You can go to it. You can discover, far, discover farm subsidy recipients by name and amount down to the level of your local zip code. And if you wish to avoid subsidized companies, here's a tool. It's a great resource, and it's funded uh, through donations. Uh, their major flaw, however, does come in the fact of not opposing subsidies in principle, as, as I do. Uh, they only consider uh, those that are destructive to the environment, and they want to continue subsidies just instead of shifting them to other areas that they, they agree with. That's not a free market solution, uh, but they do offer this very powerful free market tool. Subsidized and overproduced corn, for example, wheat, soybeans, find their way into everything sold in grocery stores in the forms of corn syrup, enriched wheat flour, and soybean oil. Pick up any package of processed food and you will likely find at least one of those ingredients, if not all three of them. It does save you a few dimes here and there, but it comes at the cost of continual government intervention and regulation. It comes at the cost of the dependence of farmers upon government handouts, not to mention the loss of nutrition in processed foods. Why not buy as much food as you can from local growers? Why not find a local milk producer who will sell direct? Why not buy as often as possible from local farmers markets? The same with chicken, eggs, meat, much more. The same with sugary snacks, by the way, and I'm no health food Nazi by any, any means. Uh, American sugar has been subsidized uh, by limiting the amount that can be imported. There's only a handful of American sugar producers and they fight vigorously to maintain their special protection from many foreign competitors. And since so sweeping a program provides so great an advantage to so few producers, then the subsidy is actually staggering. One analyst, James Bovard, writes, quote, since 1980, the sugar program has cost consumers and taxpayers the equivalent of more than $3 million for each American sugar grower. And he concludes, quote, some people win the lottery, other people grow sugar. So since this market is so rigged, and sugar admittedly is a luxury item anyway, why not cut it out of your diet as much as possible? This would eliminate your contribution to the subsidy of at least one sector. Meanwhile, the major candy companies have all closed most of their operations in the United States and moved to Mexico, where the sugar is not, uh, there are no tariffs on the sugar, it's cheaper, labor's cheaper, and since what they import back into the U.S. is a finished product and not a raw material, they dodge the sugar quota problem altogether. Another consumer issue can be transportation. Now here's the best formula for personal automobiles, buy used, pay cash, and drive it until the wheels fall off. This helps minimize contributions to auto workers unions whose collective bargaining rights leverage government power to increase worker benefits of many shapes and sizes. And this is especially important for autom automobiles manufactured in the United States where collective bargaining rights often hold sway and workers are forced to unionize. Due to their government-rigged market, auto workers make on average about $55 an hour in wages and benefits. 
That's a six-figure package per worker compared to the median household income in the United States of $45,000. United Auto Workers is so proud of its accomplishments that it publishes a yearly updated website listing all the automobiles its unionized workers produce. I would su suggest using that tool, download the list, review it, and make marketing decisions on what to buy and what not to buy accordingly. Purchasing used vehicles as opposed to new compounds the power of your decisions on what to avoid. Uh, the buying used, uh, in buying used or pre-owned cars, you, you uh, only support the local dealer, not the manufacturer necessarily. The previous buyer has already paid the inflated price to the manufacturer, so you don't have to worry about that part of it. And of course, you will also support the financier unless you pay cash. But you make your used purchase have the greatest economic power uh, if you drive it forever. And this keeps one more customer, that is you, from further supporting a rigged market. Now this type of thinking can be taken to any extent that you wish, into every facet, every market you can desire. I've only included these couple here, that is food and automobiles, uh, just to demonstrate how to think in this regard. Uh, how can you apply the same principle as the point um, avoiding companies that leverage government coercion for their profits in every other area of your life. And I'll leave that up to you. Now another step you can take is to support organizations which fight legally for the free market principles you believe in. There are public interest law firms that specialize in all manner of property rights, free market rights, gun rights, many others. There is, for example, a National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation based in Springfield, Virginia. They exist for the purpose, quoting from their website, defending America's workers from the abuses of forced unionization. There's the Pacific Legal Foundation in Sacramento, which, quote, fights for limited government, property rights, individual rights, and a balanced approach to environmental protection. There is the Southeastern Legal Foundation in Marietta, Georgia, uh, which is just yet another example. Firms like these are usually nonprofit and can usually be supported via tax-deductible donations. There are certainly many more. You should search for one that's in your area uh, or region, one that you prefer. Research it carefully. Talk to staff members, leaders, if possible, to determine a sense of their values and their goals. And then, if you wish, support that cause. But the best way you can personally impact society in regard to free markets is to start a business. Legitimate, honest businesses generate wealth, they provide services to the community, they create jobs. And sure, this is not in itself going to decrease the number of taxes, subsidies, and regulations by the government. Uh, if anything, you'll discover there are a lot more taxes there than you really knew existed. But this, in turn, will give you further incentive to fight for a free society. Greater Christian ethical entrepreneurship is a key to spreading the interests of freedom in society. Business and entrepreneurship will require education for some people. It should be an educational priority, especially for your children as well, since by now you're homeschooling them, of course. Without proper guidance, children are indoctrinated in socialistic principles from very early ages, especially in public schools. A study done years ago by John Hunter revealed no significant difference in economic worldview between Christian and secular colleges. 
Thus, despite having the Ten Commandments we've talked about allegedly at their base, right in front of their faces, Christians have no advantage in learning and embracing free markets. And this is true not just in college, but at a very early age. The Nehemiah Institute has conducted extensive tests that show significant departures from biblical thinking can begin as early as fifth and sixth grade. This organization offers educational resources on biblical economics and government. And there's also a very similar, similarly named but independent Nehemiah project, which offers many training courses, books, and resources on biblical principles for entrepreneurship and business although that latter group does appear to have more of a charismatic flavor. Again, your choice. As Christians, we must attend to more than just the economic and political and legal aspects of free enterprise. Christian business is as much an endeavor of stewardship as it is anything else. If we are to perpetuate a free society, we must value more than just the bottom line. Indeed, in many cases, people and values should come before profits. This does not mean that we need government interventions for wage and price controls. Far from it. But it does mean that God's moral laws call us to treat workers with dignity and respect, to pay them well, promptly, as well as to reduce waste in, in, in executive expenses. Uh, sure, it should be perfectly legal to do otherwise but it's still poor practice in God's eyes. Businesses, owners, officers, and executives that embrace license, exploiting employees for gain, etc., should recognize the increases in government regulation and socialistic tyranny in society as God's judgment against a society which, where such things abound. Now, this is not by any means to defend government labor relations or the vast body of regulations as godly in the way that some liberal progressive so-called Christians do. But rather, just as God used pagan Babylon to enslave a disobedient nation of Israel, so He today will use tyranny to punish careless, heartless business, uh, businesses and business practices in society. Uh, some great companies have already set precedents in this regard historically. The Guinness Brewery was a company that spread God's kingdom charity through the care it showed for its workers. It has historically paid its workers much higher wages than average, thereby recruiting, by the way, uh, and retaining the best and brightest talent while helping others to make uh, otherwise, who, who might otherwise have been left poor. But this was not all. Journalist Stephen Mansfield relates the following in a book he wrote not too long ago, God and Guinness, uh, from a, from a 1928 company report at Guinness. And by the way, this is the height of international corporate greed just before the Great Depression. Quote, all employees with their, with their wives and children enjoyed the services of an on-site clinic staffed by full-time doctors night and day. These doctors also made house calls. Medical services included company-dedicated dentists, pharmacists, nurses, home sanitation consultants, and a masseuse. Retirees received pensions, in some cases even when they never contributed to the fund. Pensions extended to widows. Most funeral expenses for company families and family members were paid by the company. The company had its own bank and provided mortgages for uh, company families. The company spurred living standards with domestic skill competitions. It gave cash awards for sewing and cooking, decorating, gardening, hat making. 
The same was true for crafts and trades, sports of all kinds. The company provided concerts and lectures for moral and intellectual improvement, especially for housewives. Guinness paid for employees' education. They could advance in technical school, trades, side businesses, or more advanced education. The company paid all and provided a library and lounges for study. The company provided paid vacations, including train fares and spending cash. Many of the workers enjoying these benefits had just fought a decade earlier in World War I, but they didn't fear losing their benefits. Guinness guaranteed their jobs would be available when they returned. Yet these workers were entitled to none of these things, and the government was involved in demanding or requiring none of them in this case. No business owes anything to its workers except a fair market compensation, and thus whatever the parties agree on, just read Luke 20. All of these special benefits were private, voluntary subsidies, Christian charity distributed through regular business. Christian businessmen should emulate this example with their employees, in some cases above and beyond the minimum government's mandate. Other great examples to review are the efforts at leadership and employee relations uh, successfully revived and reformed by Christian business leaders such as Wayne Alderson. He developed the value of the person program to rescue labor management at a struggling Pitron Steel Company many years ago. It was Christian-based, it was highly successful. So much so that a young R.C. Sproul Sr. wrote a book about the episode entitled Stronger Than Steel. Other great conservative successes include Lemuel L. Boulware's awesome but unfortunately titled book, The Truth About Boulwareism, and the wonderful private charity and leadership of William Volcker described in the book Mr. Anonymous by Herbert Cornuel. All of these deserve greater elucidation, which I plan to provide in supplemental articles and videos in this project. If you really want to expand the principle of freedom, you should aim not only at the reduction of taxes and regulations, but also at the privatization of roads, bridges, ports, parks, libraries, museums, educations, every other government subsidized or owned area of this life. And of course, this is a very large goal, which, which is beyond the capacity of some people even to imagine as feasible, let alone embrace as, pract as, a, as a practical goal. Uh, it, but there are viable and workable long-term plans for such goals, and the general public is no more ready for them than it is the great revival that it's going to take to make them happen. Uh, these more radical goals aside, the steps I've outlined here are very practical, uh, very simple, and honestly don't require that much lifestyle sacrifice. If we are serious about freedom and desire to have a return to free markets, then we should be able to start making minor adjustments to our lifestyles to begin with, and then working toward educating ourselves and others, including our representatives, on what truly free market principles are, on truly free market principles, on the reduction of government, on the reduction of uh, interference in the markets, uh, local, state, national, across the board. Beginning, of course, with the education and lifestyle changes described in topics one and two of this project. These later measures fall right in place for the person committed to the long-term sacrifice and discipline necessary for the cause of liberty.